Today's episode is brought to you by Rocket Dollar. We had Henry Yoshida on the podcast a couple of months ago, oh, back in August, talking about Rocket Dollar, which is a company that allows you to invest in alternatives using your IRA. So to learn more, check out rocketdollar.com slash animal spirits. Welcome to Animal Spirits, a show about markets, life, and investing. Join Michael Batnick and Ben Carlson as they talk about what they're reading, writing, and watching. Michael Batnick and Ben Carlson work for Ritholtz Wealth Management. All opinions expressed by Michael and Ben or any podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of Ritholtz Wealth Management. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for investment decisions. Clients of Ritholtz Wealth Management may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. All right, Ben. We are doing listener questions today. And I would love to see like a word plot, a cloud plot, a scatter plot, whatever, of like words that we get over time from our email listeners. What would your words be? Well, it's just interesting when we get like leverage and growth and cloud and momentum. I don't know, just cash, investing. But anyway, the point that I'm making is we got obviously, and this is definitely not to knock on our audience at all because we have an amazing audience, but just the ebbs and flows of the tone of the emails is pretty interesting to see in real time. So 15 months ago, the majority of our emails were saying, I feel like I'd be an idiot to not put all of my money into growth stocks, crypto, whatever, everything that was flying. Or I'm 25 and I've got a 40-year time horizon. Why wouldn't I invest in TQQQ? Which I think actually we got an email. I think we have one of those in the docs today. Yes, we get a lot of those. Yeah, I don't know if that stuff will change. And it's saying, listen, I understand the downside. You guys have schooled me on this, but I think I can live with it. So this is the period where you figure out if you can live with it, correct? Yes. Do you have a question you want to start on? Otherwise, I got Go one. Go ahead. Here. I'll start off with some lighter fare. I thought this was a good one. Huge fan of Animal Spirits, Compounded Friends, and all of your individual blog posts. However, I'm baffled by the huge amount of content creation while having the ability to binge endless hours of streaming shows and movies. Surely you have discussed a secret time portal and or cloning device which allows you to split yourselves to be doing multi-things at the same time. My question, do you believe your ability to create content is a product of watching or binging visual content? Thoughts? Well, I'm going to go the opposite here. I actually do think that one of the reasons that we are able to produce a lot of content is because we consume a lot of it, but not visually. Visually for me, watching movies and TV shows, that's like the time for me to turn my brain off. That's like decompressed. The kids are in bed and just sitting on the couch and I've been doing stuff all day, reading, writing, whatever, talking to people on the phone and watching TV is my way to turn everything off and just relax. I don't think I watch that much TV. It might seem like it listening to me, but I watch the Knicks, unfortunately, and I don't watch a ton of TV shows. I watch Yellowstone. I'm going to watch Ozark. I'm going to watch Station Eleven based on your strong pound wreck. Did you start Ozark yet? Not yet. Okay. I love it. I watch one or two movies a week. I actually think compared to the average person, I might be below average in terms of my TV time. This is what I think does help us produce a lot of content, whether it's the podcast or any of the videos or blogs. It's reading. We consume a lot of content. We do a lot of reading. And I think... That amount of reading, this is going to sound so cliche, but it compounds on each other. Would and... you say it's a flywheel? <laughs> but I feel like I have this like photographic memory of old charts and blog posts and books. and like Having all of that knowledge in there, even though you can't always bring it back up to the front of your brain like immediately, you kind of know where to look for stuff. 
there's stuff that I wrote in my first book that came out in 2015 that I sometimes have to go back and reference because I don't remember what I wrote. But just reading all the stuff that we do and for every 10 things we read, maybe two of them make it into the podcast. So I think it's just reading all that other content from other people and not trying to like think that you're coming up with all these unique things. It's just commenting on what's going on and what other people are saying. That's half the battle. We do get this email a lot. We don't talk about it a lot because whatever, it's not that interesting. But we got another one last week. Like, hey, my wife heard me listen to you guys. And she says like, these guys have wives, kids, sleep. Like, how do they do what they do? I think I've gotten like super efficient with time. I have like very, very, very little wasted time. And you have to do that when you have kids, I feel like. You can't have it all. So you have to be efficient with your time. The other answer is hard work. We love what we do. I am at my computer as soon as I put my kids down, not because I like feel like I'm a slave to it, but I genuinely love what we do. So I'm at the computer in the morning when my life leaves for work at 6.15. I'm there all day and I go back at night when my kids are down. But anyway, that's it. There's no secret, no time portal. Paying attention to this stuff for us is like a hobby as well. It's yes. our jobs, but it's also a hobby. Are Michael and Ben idiots for saying that the bull market could last much longer a few weeks ago? <laughs> <laughs> this is from Glenn in West Michigan. <sighs> Sorry, I obviously made that one up. Oh, you made that up? <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's funny. Glenn in West Michigan. We got a few comments on this, so I just okay. put them all into one. I still believe that's a possibility to happen because guess what? Even during bull markets, you have corrections. Now, could this be like the end of the world? Everything's coming to an end and this is a crash and that was the peak. Sure, of course. But we've had corrections since 2009. I wrote them down here. Okay. So this is since 2009. 2011. So there was 2010, it fell 16%. 2011, it was 19%. 2015? At a 13% correction then. 2018 had a 10% correction and a 19.8% correction. 2020 had a 34% correction. There are always corrections, even during bull markets. This doesn't feel correct. What do you mean? I'm kidding. This current one. I'm saying that like they're like, ha, gotcha. It's like, okay, nice try. I appreciate that. But this stuff happens. And I think if we don't get a recession from this, which the economy is still pretty strong. So like, okay, growth slows from 8% to 3 or 4%. That seems like a risk, but that's not a recession. That's just growth slowing. We're going to talk a lot more about this. I guess the biggest question is... How deeply do investors re-rate large mega cap growth stocks? To me, that's the big question. Like, In other words, is this hiking cycle that we're about to see going to permanently re-rate Netflix from wherever it was down to a much smaller number? And the jury's out. We're going to spend more time on this on the show, but here's the thing. This is why the psychology of the market is so interesting because if the Fed has rates at 1%, how much does that really change Netflix's business model? It doesn't change it at all. Correct. Like, is Shopify a different company because the Fed has rates at 1%? No. Of course not. Right. So you're right. It's the psychology. And that's why the PE ratio or whatever price to sell, whatever multiple you want to talk about is so fascinating because it's really how do investors feel about this company? That's it. It's how do they feel? There are industries and companies that are certainly impacted by borrowing costs, obviously. But a 1% move in the 10 is not necessarily going to impact, actually not going to impact Netflix at all in terms of its underlying business. But- that's not what the stock market is about all the time. In fact, it's usually not all about the underlying business. That's what makes it so interesting because for 18 months there, it felt like there was no second level thinking. Howard Marks had been kicked to the curb and now second level thinking is returning. And people are having to figure out like, okay, it's still a good company, but do I still want to pay this for that great company or not? That's what's so interesting to me. All right. What are your thoughts on replacing the cash bond position in your portfolio with whatever the most conservative target date fund available is? The way I see it, it should perform better than cash, cities, or bonds. On the other hand, if the market turns bearish, it shouldn't get dinged. I guess I don't know what the worst case scenario is if the market turns. If the worst case scenario is the target date fund drops 5 to 10%, then it might be a risk worth taking. This is 
an odd question. I guess it's essentially saying, is a ultra-diversified portfolio that's going to rebalance for me and get more defensive over time? Does that make more sense than holding cash or an online savings account or whatever? It's probably not the well, worst idea in the world, but... Actually, I'm sorry. I skipped over an important part of this email. This person said, the year-to-date returns on the 2020 target date fund my employer offers is 2.99%. That's far better than any interest I can get on cash CDs, treasuries, or bonds. Well, check it now because it's definitely not up 3%. I looked. So this a Vanguard 2020 target date fund is roughly 45% stocks, 55% bonds right now. That's still taking a decent amount of risk in your portfolio. I think if you're talking about like this optimized portfolio, we've looked at work in the past where like instead of having a 100% bond portfolio, having like up to 20% in stocks actually gets you better returns with like lower risk. But I think going that far out where you have still almost 50% of your portfolio in stocks, you're going to lose money occasionally. And right now, that target date fund is obviously down. I don't know that this is a great idea. So basically, replace cash and bonds with bonds and stocks? Yes, just in a diversified manner. Unless the target date piece of it, literally the target date is going to allow you to behave better. But this seems more like a return thing than a behavior thing. I'm going to say no, don't do this. Final answer. That makes sense to me. Not to beat a dead horse about leveraged ETFs, but I was wondering if you ever looked at an all-weather portfolio using leveraged ETFs. So we're talking somebody hopped on Portfolio Visualizer and did SPY, TLT, bonds, energy, stocks, and gold, and then showed us the leveraged version. And then said, since I'm near retirement, this appeals to me because then I could hold more cash and still be invested. Okay, that's interesting. This is the return stacking thing where... You decrease the allocation of stocks, but you use a leverage the leverage, ETF. yeah. Listen, leverage is not always bad. In fact, what this person is getting at, assuming they could stick with it, I can get behind. I don't know this person. I don't know what their historical past performance is like. By the way, historical behavior, forget performance, historical behavior, very good predictor of future behavior. If you think that you have demonstrated the ability to sit through some volatility, I think this is using leverage intelligently. That makes sense. But it is seeing that like one thing in your portfolio totally stick out. So you talked about the TQQQ before. It's down like 40% right now. These things get crushed. So that's what you have to figure out. And then I guess you figure, do you rebalance more because these things are going to be more volatile, both to the upside and the downside? So there's some portfolio things, but you're right. If you're using it in moderation as a piece of a portfolio and you have a plan of what to do with it and how to handle it, that makes more sense to me than saying, screw it, I'm just going to put all of my portfolio into this leverage thing and see what happens. One more thing on this question. So this person mentioned portfolio visualizer. If you've never used this before, as far as like DIY investors go, it's an awesome tool for putting a portfolio in, whether it's funds or an index and checking your percentages and changing them, comparing different portfolios. I've been using this for years and years. It's been a while since I've used it, but I did a lot more in the past when I was first starting out. It's a great free tool for investors, especially DIY investors. For DIYers that do all these quantitative backtests but want a way to implement them, we might have a company come on the show to talk about their product, which is pretty unique. It's called Composer. The website is composer.trade. And all of these sort of backtesting strategies that you can employ, you can actually build and implement. So I think that's a pretty unique product that we're going to, like I said, potentially have on the show later this year. So anyway, all right, where are we going next? I have a question about bond ETFs. 
and how to properly structure my investing in them. I am using this portion of my portfolio as a house down payment account and holding it in my taxable account. I was inspired by the fund you guys talked about. Long question. What bond duration or fund types would be ideal for this type of concept? Let's say a two to four year time horizon. If it matters, about 65% of this portfolio is bonds and 35% is VTI. Is this even worth doing? All right, Ben, what do you think here? So if you have a two to four year time horizon... This is asset liability matching in the pension geek speak. Sure, that makes sense. So if you're saving for house down payment and you say, I'm going to buy it in three years, do you want to be in 20-year treasuries? Probably not. In fact, no, the volatility not. there. Yeah. That's the same. Like, Think about stocks as like a 40 or 50-year bond, basically. Is that matching what you're doing? No. I was talking to you today. One of the reasons that the market stuff doesn't really impact me when going to corrections is because I'm holding everything for five plus years from here. Like Nothing with under five-year duration is anything I'm going to spend right Should now. Should we flex a little here, Ben? Should we flex on them? <laughs> How so? <laughs> yeah, it sounds like a humble brag. No, but... we were talking about how badly our Robinhood accounts are getting beaten up with crypto and some growth stocks. Although I don't have any growth stocks anymore, not to brag. Actually, I have one. I have one. I puked them all up a couple of weeks ago. But we were making the point that like this doesn't phase us, not because we have thicker skin than anybody else, but this is money that is not earmarked for today. If we were trading these portfolios and living on them, oh my God, no chance. Are you kidding me? You'd be freaking out. Be freaking out. But we can smile to the extent that we can with a 45, 50% decline. Actually, yeah, 50%, because it doesn't matter. This is not money that we're using today. It's money for tomorrow or way into the so future. So that's the idea here is thinking through this question is, yeah, matching up your time horizon to what you're investing in. And that's when you figure out, is that 35% in stocks? He's talking about bonds here. But yeah, the bond is easier. If you did a 7 to 10-year bond, that's a little longer, but it's still probably not going to blow you up. But the stock portion can blow you up. So that's probably the bigger thing here is how much you have in stocks versus what your bond duration is going to be. But obviously, you don't want to use 20 and 30-year bonds when you're investing for something in two to four years. And now we are going to bring on a guest host, Henry Yoshida from Rocket Dollar, to answer some more questions from the listeners. We're joined today by Henry Yoshida. Henry is the CEO of Rock Dollar. We had Henry on the podcast, which we'll link to probably a year ago. Yeah, less than that. Feels like it probably, but less than that. For time sure. dilation. I've totally lost track of time. So Henry, Rocket Dollar is a platform where you can invest in alternative assets inside of an IRA. Is that the long and short of it? That's correct. So you can do private and alt investments, but inside of the structure of an IRA with us. All right. And Henry, you're going to be on with us for the rest of the year. We're super excited to have you because you have a ton of knowledge. You were a financial planner back in the day. There's a lot of blind spots that Ben and I have where you're going to be able to fill in the blanks. I hope so. I spent a long time doing it. Regular financial advisor, RA, so kind of been there, done that, and still maintain the licenses. So Let's start out with one that I got this question. I had really no idea. I thought this one was right up your alley. So it says, please explain safe, simple agreement for future equity securities. This person says, I see opportunities to own pre-IPO companies but I'm worried about some of the dilution that I've seen in offering documents. I keep thinking about where I would be if I had the chance to invest in Facebook shares pre-IPO. Is this ever a good idea? If someone's being asked to look at investing in a safe, that means they're getting a chance to look at a company pretty early. So there's the good and the bad of a safe. So one is it's a debt instrument. So you're technically loaning the company money. You have no idea what amount of stock that you're eventually going to own in that company. The one thing you do know in a safe We don't have the context, but the typical provision means that you are guaranteed to get a bonus when it does price into stock. So you're loaning the company money until they close an equity round of funding. 
And usually the provision is you get like a 20% bonus or they have some sort of amount in there that if the valuation later is higher than that, you get based on the lower valuation in your safe note. Why do companies do this the way of debt instead of selling startup equity? What's the difference? A couple of things from the founder side. So this is kind of obviously post-financial advisor and putting on my entrepreneur hat. It's that one, a lot cheaper to do with your counsel. And two, you may be trying to hit a couple of milestones, which would then imply a higher valuation for the company. So in anticipation of that, you don't want to price it now low because you haven't actually achieved any of these milestones. Like a typical one, for example, is that you quite frankly could be literally pre-revenue and pre-product. But once you launch, you have a great wait list and it's going to be worth a lot more money. So you don't want to lock in that price now. So you do a safe. You take a much simpler instrument, take in a couple million bucks, borrow money technically from people with the right to participate, add a bonus to a future equity round. So these are done in between rounds. So let's say a company did their Series A and an investor wants to invest. The founder wants them to invest for strategic reasons. They might do a safe where the investor will put in a million bucks at what? An 8% coupon, something like that? You'll pick some sort of coupon rate. So probably... Usually I see something in the range of four to eight. So maybe eight's a little bit on the high end. So probably split the middle there, five, six. And that accrues, right? That's not actually being distributed. Yeah, that accrues. So a good example is let's say you do 100,000 bucks, it'll accrue at 6% interest per year. But remember, safes typically also have a time to limit too. So it might be like two years. So at worst, it's just going to be basically 112 or if it's compounded 113 and change for example, as a bonus going into that next round when it prices. So let's say that you get, in your example, you get 6% compound. So you're going to invest $113 in two years. Are you getting to invest, and this is obviously proven into the contract, at say a 20% discount to what the next round is priced at? Yeah. So you get the interest, which by the way, just so you know, there's a lot of levers in here, but the interest is actually the less important part that you'll get your interest and that'll be 113, but you probably will realize more value out of, let's say, whatever, 20%, 15%, 10% bonus. When you say bonus, do you mean like a discount to the next round? Or yeah, are we saying the same thing? Yeah, we're saying the same thing. Sorry. All right. So I guess, obviously, this is dependent on if you get into a good company. That's like the bottom line. And remember, I guess you're right that technically your listener had asked the question related to, is this a good move? Am I getting diluted? Well, the reality is that you're actually lending the company money. And eventually, your safe will convert into some form of equity if your company lands an equity round. But one thing you know is that you're actually going to have this sort of most favored nation status where you're going to be better than the people that actually price that round down the road. In all cases, if anything, just so you know, the safe round, when you use the word dilution, is going to dilute anyone that was a current shareholder. And you're the one that's going to do that to them. Boom. You're adding new shares to the cap table. So if anything, you're cramming someone else down from a dilution standpoint. All right, let's move on to the next one. This one is pretty straightforward, and I think this is right up your alley. Henry, Michael and Ben, I'm a loyal listener of the podcast. I love the content. Similar to you, my investment portfolio largely consists of index funds, but I do also have a portion allocated to individual stocks. My question is this. If I'm of the view that my individual stock picks should do better than the market over the long term, isn't it better to hold these in a Roth IRA or our Canadian equivalent, the TFSA, so that my gains are not taxed or... Should I have these stocks in a taxable account to be able to harvest tax losses if my individual stocks turn out to be trash? I would say that, first of all, you probably don't make investments into individual stocks thinking about the tax loss harvesting that you could do in the future. You obviously invested at a point thinking that they're going to go up. So long time when I was an advisor, I told people that that's not really the mentality you should have kind of going in. It reminds me of thinking about 
before you walked into the ball game here for an NFL playoff game, should you leave at the third quarter if you're down by 20? You know, you don't really think about that before you go into the game. Well, you're talking to a Giants and Lions fan, so actually we do. <laughs> That's right. Well, Stafford won, so <laughs> kind of went vicariously. My only planning for a Lions game is to bring a brown bag to put over my head, pretty much. Uh, got it, got it. Okay, good. So that being said, I would say that, look, if the option of owning, let's say, these individual stocks or index funds inside of a Roth or not, I would actually sort of lean towards having the individual stocks in the Roth IRA for the game purposes. Because the index funds, there's track record, there's history, there's predictability in sort of the returns, the volatility, at least more so than a basket of individual stocks. And you should put the more volatile ones in the better tax-treated account, which is the Roth. So if you had to choose one or the other, I'd probably lean to index funds, brokerage account, taxable, and then individual stocks, Roth, and not think so much about what if they end up becoming trash and I have losses to harvest? Well, if we got into your side of the business, so let's say Michael is investing in a hot startup and he has the ability to invest through Rocket Dollar not to using brag. an IRA. Does it make sense to put that startup investment there because, hey, I could see 10x returns and then I'm going to get them tax-free and I can do the Peter Thiel thing. Does that make sense or do you think it still makes sense to have that in a taxable account? So for me, I think that if you have really, really high upside, because the downside is defined, the downside is like literally limited to the exact dollar amount you put in. So that makes a pretty big whale. So I'm sure this is like a million dollar check you're writing <laughs> into the deal. But if it were Ben and I, we might be doing $20,000. And so our losses would be limited to the million dollars or the $20,000 in our case, and that's defined. But the upside is it's Facebook and your Peter Thiel to maybe something more like a startup and well, it's a five or 10 bagger, for example. I think you go off of what's the unpredictable high-end case, not off of the defined low one. Again, same thinking. Why would you make the investment if you say to yourself, well, I have a good tax write-off? If that were the case, you could just donate the money today and give yourself a tax write-off. All right. I have been in higher education for the last 16 years at private colleges. My retirement has been at TIA, where I have invested primarily in stock funds, mainly U.S. equities and some EM. I recently took a position at a public university. Here, the school matches 6.5% to my 6.5% for the state retirement system. This is an annuity with me getting a percentage of the average of my top three earning years. The two allocation options are 100% stocks or blended, which I assume is 60-40. With this being guaranteed income based on salary and not portfolio allocation, Assuming I stay here through retirement, how should I count this in my allocation strategy? I have a Roth through Fidelity and a brokerage account where I hold more speculative stocks. I have a high risk tolerance and I'm interested in how to allocate the rest of my money outside of the annuity I am now putting money towards through my employer. A lot of different pieces of that. So public university, a portion of it goes into the state retirement system and it's a guaranteed income stream. So I guess I would say that if you had the choice between two portfolios and you're going to be guaranteed the income stream, the context wasn't given here, but I'm not sure it actually matters if you're in the blended portfolio of 100% stock and so forth. Maybe the match portion is not in the annuity. So I'll go off of the assumption that this listener said they have a high risk tolerance and they have two options of portfolios for the portion that isn't the annuity. Because usually there's an annuity component and you know, kind of a defined contribution component where you get money in a tax qualified account, you could roll in the future to an IRA. If you have a high risk tolerance, obviously, you'd probably go for the higher stock allocation in that. And the way that you might calculate and sort of work this into your overall allocation, if you're working just on your own, is to say that, hey, look, I have a guaranteed income stream, which is considered very, very safe. Like this is attached to a state. I think it's pretty safe to assume that this is a pretty lock solid 
income stream that you can count on if you hit the requisite number of years to get the max payout, which is the average of those three years. And if that's the case, then if you're already a high risk tolerance person, you would calculate this portion of your overall financial allocation as pretty, pretty safe, which might even let you to be higher risk tolerance in your own individual accounts. So that could be instead of individual stocks with a tilt towards tech and high growth stocks, for example. I think you could definitely afford that because most people don't have any sort of guaranteed baseline of income outside of Social Security, which probably itself is not guaranteed for people that are too young. We often get people who ask, if I have a pension, should I consider that a bond? I think you're looking at it the right way is that like, if you have this guaranteed income, it's not even really part of your portfolio. It just means you have to pull less from your portfolio. That means maybe you can take a little more risk. So instead of taking 4% from your portfolio, maybe you're only taking 2% now. So it allows you a longer runway since you're not taking as much from the portfolio. Exactly. And I just read an article too from a friend of mine who's been retirement researching for a long time, young guy named Wade Fowle. He's a PhD at the American College of Financial Planning. And even he says that now he's pegging that the 4% sort of withdrawal rule to be able to not eat in the principal is probably at best about 60% good. He used to say it was 80-90, that you had a $2 million portfolio, you could withdraw 4% of that per year and be okay across a diversified portfolio. So you're right. I mean, if you're one of the people that are fortunate enough to be looking at a pension, I've talked about this exactly with my brother. My brother's a police officer. He hits full retirement here in one more year. So he's at year 19. It's a 20-year term to hit the minimum retirement where he is in Texas. And we talk about that. I tell them that, hey, you're overly conservative in the rest of this because you have a base that's equivalent to four times Social Security for an average American person. And you need to factor that in. I might even argue that's better than a bond. Oh, that was great. And so forth. Bonds have some risk to it. There's a default risk. I would argue that there really isn't for a pension because even after that, there's a default that the government will pay it out. When we get them. It is interesting. All right, Henry, this is awesome. Thank you so much for joining us. We will drive traffic to where? Rocketdollar.com. Is it a dot com? It's a dot com, yeah. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you. All right. I'm currently a junior in college. Love the podcast. Long-time listener. First time writing in. I know the conventional warnings are to avoid leveraged ETFs because they are dangerous and have relatively high fees, but their returns over time are phenomenal. True. During a big drawdown, I would get hammered, of course, but given that my outlook is 25 plus years, I think a leveraged ETF would have more than enough time to recover. Is this a good way to increase returns while still young and don't have any large monetary responsibilities or is this strategy too risky? I think the answer is it really depends on your risk tolerance. I don't know what else to say. If you think, if you really, really think that you can watch your account go down by 70%, I think you might be fooling yourself because you, Ben and I just spoke about being able to deal with a 50% decline. There's a big, 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 big difference between down 50 and down 70 it might sound like, oh, well, just 20% more. No, no, no. It's exponential. It's like saying that it's like the difference between two degrees and negative 10 degrees. It is an exponential difference. So I think if you're going to go down this route, maybe, in fact, not maybe, do it with the portion of your portfolio, watch it blow up, and then maybe see how you feel. Because you are 25, you have a long time to go, so there's no need to go all in on day one. And especially if you are young, you don't know if you can handle this or not. You've never lived through it, so you have nothing. You can say, oh, I can handle it. Don't worry. You don't know that, though, until you've experienced it. What's the line from where are the customer's yachts? There are certain things in life that like can sex. only be conveyed. Yeah. So you just don't know until you've lived through it. Okay. This is interesting because I think we got this before crypto started getting crushed. I teach in a rural school and was talking to a senior who was interested in becoming an airplane mechanic. I told him how much he could expect to make in the Air Force and then go into the private sector. He seemed pretty upset, even though it's actually a great amount of money for someone with just a high school degree. But then he said he will be fine if his crypto goes up. 
on the one side, I see the likes of Ray Dalio and Andreessen Horowitz who believe in crypto. Is Dalio a crypto believer now? Yeah. That's new to me. Then I have students who can't complete simple assignments but believe in crypto. I guess it is clear that even the billionaires who only have a small portion of crypto while my students have their life savings in crypto, so it's really an issue of not understanding risk. How do you reconcile the reality that there are believers in crypto who have a good understanding and some who have no idea what they're doing? I hear my students mention crypto are reminded of the story of the shoeshine boy giving stock advice. That's the old Kennedy one. Is this the same thing? When I hear students talking about crypto, I'm tempted to sell minimal speculative FOMO investments in crypto. I guess not really career advice, but crypto advice. So using a student as an anecdote. I guess if you are banking on an investment to make up for lost earnings, that is kind of a career move and a dangerous one at that, I would say, especially for a young person. I still believe now that we have like millions of headlines a day, every headline indicator is essentially useless because there's just too many to go from. Except if Matt Damon endorses crypto. <laughs> but by the way, I looked though today. Remember the Shibu Inu one that we talked about? The guy put $8,000 in and then made like $6 billion? which I think whoever it was actually cashed out. Since then, that was like the top, basically. That headline was more or less the top, this recent top. Whatever, anecdotes after the fact. I still think looking at anecdotes, especially if we're talking young people are still who are just trying to get into this stuff and understand. I'm still a believer long-term in Doge. <laughs> <laughs> I know, Shiba. <laughs> How bad are they down? I don't know. 70, 80%? It's got to be a lot, right? When there's 15 zeros, it's hard to calculate. True. All right, here's a good macro one. I'm going to get dunked on that comment. Shut up, math nerds. Talk about with the calculator. You can't enter all those zeros. Just shut up. I guess, you, right. well, actually, I guess you don't need to enter the zeros. You could just do the, get rid of the zeros and just do divide by. Anyway, I don't know. It's down a lot. Leave me alone. All right. That was a just nice argument with yourself. It seems like we've heard a ton about MMT before the pandemic as a justification for fiscal policy. Then the pandemic happens and we see Stephanie Kelton and others explode in the financial media channels again as we debated fiscal stimulus. As a concept, it's fascinating. However, I haven't seen or heard from Kelton or the other MMT proponents in the last year or so, is the industry quietly backpedaling in the face of all recent inflation numbers? Hang on. It's not that you haven't heard from Stephanie. It's not like she's not calling you anymore. Right. She's still out there doing her thing. It's that they're not getting as much attention right now, given what's going on. But this is an interesting question. I don't think that you can say like, okay, they're wrong. Because if you read her book, she says the one constraint to fiscal policy inflation. is inflation. Okay, we've reached the constraint. We've spoken about this a million times that MMT was not a license to just print money forever and ever. It was a different way to frame the conversation about constraints and where they really are. And I think she made a lot of good points in the book. I think there probably is a limit to how much money you can pump out there. But I still think that it is a worthwhile framework for thinking about the economy and policy choices. And I think this was such a weird one-off. There's no such thing as a normal environment or a normal recession. But whatever that is, trying to implement that now as opposed to a pandemic I feel like that had to make this thing all worse to the spending got multiplied more because of the pandemic. And then the supply chains got multiplied more because of the pandemic. I don't think you can say like, okay, they're obviously wrong. I wonder if the political will is going to be there again to use this much spending in the future. I was almost fairly certain about like, okay, every future recession now we're going to get more spending. And this inflation has maybe totally rethink that because I think the politicians are the ones getting hammered. Well, guess what? When the Dems get crushed in the midterms, this might stay with them for a long time. That's why, though, the Democrats are in a worse position right now than the Federal Reserve is. Because I think the Fed has time to let this stuff play out, and inflation by the end of the year will probably be lower. Probably. It's a pretty, I don't know, high likelihood. I've been wrong before. but So I think that the Fed has more time to be patient than the people in charge of the politics If instead of sending out checks for... However much money it was, if we only did half as much money, would there be less inflation? 
That's a good question. I really don't know. If we didn't do that second stimulus package, yeah. I honestly don't know. That's a good question. Thank you. <laughs> Credit to me. I asked the good questions. All right. If the bulk of gains with the broad index come from the performance of a select few of its constituents, does that mean going equal weight will lead to underperformance? Or do the equal weight products allow you to benefit from some mean reversion gains? So what this person is asking is, I guess, a flawed premise, I would think. Well, it's not a flawed premise because they're right. Listen, if the market is cap-weighted, then by definition, the bigger stocks have a larger outcome or larger influence on the outcome. I think what they're asking here is, does it make sense to break market cap? Or should you just own the market as it is and assume the market knows all? You know what's aged really, really poorly? Rob Arnott's claim that anything, everything was superior to a market cap weighted strategy. That if you just weighted stocks by the letter of the alphabet, you would outperform cap weighted. Oof. And by the way, the S&P 500 has just done, I think, amazingly in all these downturns because of this. It had the shallowest downturn in March 2020. And right now, it's the shallowest of downturns. Relative to the Russell, relative to? Yeah, relative to other stuff. And what's it doing relative to the equal weight in the downturn? I would imagine it's outperforming. In fact, it's got to be outperforming. It's RSP because the bigger stocks are holding it much better. Okay, so let's look at the downturn right now. I'm going to guess the RSP is Ooh, down interesting. 14. This is Wrong? It. Equal weight is outperforming. I would not have expected this. Matthew, edit that out. <laughs> okay. So we're recording this on Monday afternoon. Almost close on Monday. Oh, the S&P is not going to close at a correction, by the way. It's down 9.2% now. Equal weight is down 6.8% in this correction. Wow. That is That's surprising, quite surprising. right? How is that possible? Because is Russell down 20? Russell might be down 20, and I think mid-cap's down a lot more too. Hmm. It's got to be something to do with the value stocks in the S&P holding up better. Because energy stocks are up like 10% this year. So just by having energy and financials and some of these other places that are doing better, that has to be it. And this is why you always want to make break the market cap. It's like I've been saying. <laughs> well, that's surprising to me. So equal weight is outperforming. Interesting. Huh. Okay. I would not have guessed right, that. Forget everything I just said. All right. What's next? So get back to the question here. Okay. Like, do you think holding just market cap weighted index is going to be enough? Or do you need to diversify further? This is another question we've been getting a lot, frankly, lately, because the S&P has done oh, so well. When did we talk about that? If you own the S&P 500, are you diversified? When did that come up? Last week. Someone asked me this on Portfolio Rescue. Oh, uh, uh, and I talked about it. And I said, well, it could be enough if you just stick with it. If you don't mind having just basically large cap growth as your exposure. Right. It's not enough. Here's a short one. Do you recommend the average U.S. household say net worth under $2 million? That would be definitely average. <laughs> the average. <laughs> Should have exposure to alternative assets, crypto, art, NFTs, collectible, etc. Or I guess looking at this another way, like when do you think it makes sense to start going into... Here's the thing. Do you need them? Do you need art in your portfolio? Do you need crypto in your portfolio? Probably not. Do I do it because I'm into it? I think they do in some cases offer chances for higher returns. They're fun. They're interesting. Diversification. I think all of that is true, but need, that's a tough one. This is my personal way of going about allocating beyond just the simple stuff that I've always preached. I didn't start investing in anything outside of boring old index funds until my 401k was maxed out. I am saving for my kid's 529 plan, investing in my SEP IRA. And what else is there? Then the, of course, the emergency fund and all that stuff. So all that stuff is taken care of. All the boring stuff the automation stuff, that stuff's all taken care of. 
then I go to like a taxable brokerage account, and then this other stuff. That's a good framework. So like you got to consider like illiquidity in a lot of cases, volatility. I think that for me personally, if all my alternatives went to zero, I would still be okay. I would be incredibly irritated and probably blame you, Ben, but I would be okay. And I don't think you go into it thinking like, oh, some of this stuff is going to go to zero unless you're investing in startups or whatever. But that's the way I think about it is like, I think as long as you're putting a bunch of money into your 401k and IRA or 403b, whatever it is, and then you want to play money after that, that's how I approach this. And obviously there's people who focus exclusively on this stuff. And also all our terms are not equal. There's real estate we haven't mentioned. There's, I mean, there's a billion things in between. So, Okay. I just finished. Okay. Aggressively skimmed. Nassim Tlaib's <laughs> Anti-Fragile. By the way, have you read any of his books cover to cover? I read Fooled by Randomness. I'm sorry. They're tough reads. They're not easy reads. Don't be sorry. That guy blocked me for no reason. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. I think I might have favorited a tweet. Okay. Who cares? So that he says he was really taken with Taleb's ideas of investing with a barbell strategy that puts 90% of one's money into cash and cash equivalents, 10% into high-risk, high-rewards like private equity, OTM puts, crypto, etc. As someone who has been religiously indexing for 20 years now as a decent retirement nest egg, I wonder if there's any downside to taking my new retirement savings for the next five to 10 years and following a barbell type approach. In the worst case, stuff I invest in makes no money or nothing I invest makes any money. I've got a bunch of unproductive money sitting cash. The best case, one or two of the investments hits it big and I've got enough money to buy a new Instagram t-shirt for every day of the year. This is a fan of the show. You guys had Simplify ETFs on Talk Your Book a few months ago. Would putting my new retirement contributions into something like CYA ETF or SPD ETF or Cambria's tail count as a barbell strategy, or is that not risky enough? So this is like the opposite of some of those other questions we get. This is the other end of the spectrum from should I put all my money into three times leveraged QQQ or SPX, SPY. I actually think this type of strategy is even riskier than like leveraged ETFs in some ways. Mm, say more. Well, because if you have 90% of your money in cash in your whole theory is predicated on, I'm going to take advantage of volatility or a nasty crash or correction. Oh, wait, is that what this person said? Maybe I would Well, well that's out. kind of Taleb's whole thing. Oh, I'm sorry. You buy far out of the money puts, and then when a crash happens, oh, you make a ton yeah. of money, but you Oh, all... listen, sounds great in theory. Sounds great in theory. Awful way to invest. You want to be on the sidelines waiting for the world to blow up and celebrating when everybody's losing? Not for me. It sounds pretty toxic. I get it. I get it from a portfolio point of view. The other way of thinking about that, though, is that you have this 90% in cash and you go, oh, that makes me feel good. You're obviously losing money to inflation over time, a lot of money potentially if inflation is high. And then you become attached to that cash and so you will never invest it again. Now, why couldn't you just have a more diversified portfolio and take 10% of your money and do it in something like this, do some sort of tail risk strategy with a regular portfolio that acts as a counterbalance to what you're already investing in instead of leaving it in cash and think that somehow makes you safe because I don't see how that really works. And the other thing is, we've seen with these strategies, when a blow up happens, you see, oh, this fund was up a million percent yesterday. But they never follow up to say like, okay, did people actually take their gains or did they leave it in there and then lose it all when the market came back? Preach. Because it happens so fast now, those gains could be gone in an instant. So I would have a hard time with that type of strategy, especially if you're going from an index-only portfolio. Ben, you see this market? <laughs> no, what's going on? We're on fire. SPY is green. IWM up 2.5%. Okay. Is that the bottom? Is ARC green? ARC is up 2.5%. Here's a question from Mr. Long Term to Mr. Intraday. Let's say that was the bottom. That'd be stupid to think it was, but eh, whatever. The market did not fall 10% at the close. Does Stop that count it. as a no? Does it count as a correction? 
I'm intraday. I'm an intraday peak to trough type of guy. Because when I look at historical market data, I have daily returns going back to like the 1920s. If the daily returns are the open and closed. Here's the answer. Here's the answer. If you lived in it. No, here's the answer. If you're using historical data, it's close to close. If you live through it, it's high to low. That's my final answer. But this is why it's so much easier to look at historical market data and not understand what's going on beneath the surface. Of course. Because you don't see those days when stocks were up 3% and then were down at the end of the day or down 3% and then up at the end of the day. All you see is open to close. The close. And you see how it ended. You see how the movie ended before it even started. All right. Thank you to Henry. Thank you to Rocket Dollar. Email us, animalspiritspod at gmail.com. Thank you for listening. Thank you for sending questions. We will see you next time. Mm-hmm.